Welcome back to the Pregnantish Podcast, where we always have real talk about fertility. Speaking of real talk, today we are talking about reproductive rights and how the infertility community may be affected by the recent Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. Today's episode was filmed live in front of an audience of Pregnish Verified Network fertility advocates who care deeply about the future of fertility and ensuring people trying and struggling to conceive get the support they need. We've donated this episode to our friends at Doctors for Fertility, some of whom are part of this conversation today. Doctors for Fertility is a nonprofit with a mission to educate and advocate for IVF and reproductive care. They say that in a world of increasing restrictions on reproductive care, they will work through education, advocacy, and influence to keep IVF and reproductive care safe, open, and accessible to all people, restore reproductive rights and autonomy, and lessen the social, legal, economic, and geographical restrictions preventing family building. Follow them at doctorsforfertility.org. And now back to our taping of how Roe versus Wade impacts the infertility community, filmed live in New York City in the fall of 2022. I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Krishna Upadhya from Planned Parenthood. Dr. Krishna is the Vice President of Quality Care and Health Equity, and she earned her medical degree with honors from the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Medicine and completed her residency in general pediatrics and fellowship in adolescent medicine at the John Hopkins School of Medicine. She is a fellow of the Society for Family Planning and the American Academy of Pediatrics and has served as a member of National Adolescent Health Communities for both the AAP and ACOG. Thank you so much Thank for being here. Thank you for having here. me. I'm really glad to be here such an important time in, in the world, and I'm really glad to be here to talk with you about it. We're, we're so honored you're here. Next, I'd like to welcome to the stage two outspoken, in the best way, fertility specialists here at the event. First, I'd like to bring up Dr. Lucky Sikhan from RMA New York. Dr. Lucky, you know, we followed each other for a long time on social media, and can you speak about why you are outspoken about this topic in particular that we're addressing today, how the overturn of Roe v. Wade impacts the infertility community? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I've been a huge fan of Pregnantish, and I've followed you, your personal account, and the Pregnantish account for a long time. As a fellow Canadian, I really admire all the advocacy and education you provide. I got involved, honestly, because I felt like that was the only choice or option I had. As someone who's always advocated for women's health care, for reproductive freedom, and just understanding that even though we are fertility doctors and people view us as being those that help, you know, build families, and a lot of people think this is just an, an issue that involves abortion and, you know, termination of unplanned pregnancies. But we understand that abortion is health care, and there, you know, it's it's not black and white. There are many shades of gray, and we believe in choice and freedom and we felt that there was this blind spot when it came to access to fertility treatment and IVF and how we're kind of in a vulnerable space, especially, and I know we're going to talk about it, when it comes to things like personhood bills. And so the definitions are unclear and I think it's really hard to be a patient right now 
who might be embarking on the treatment journey and not really knowing how the politics might actually influence you know, what's dictated when it comes to their care. So we just wanted to advocate and provide education. We think that lawmakers need to hear our voices as well because everyone sees it splashed across the headlines. People don't really know what the terms they're using actually mean, like ectopic pregnancy, et cetera. So we need to step in and get political and really join the conversation. And that's why we started Doctors for Fertility. And we are going to talk about Doctors for Fertility today. You can take a seat. Uh, Dr. Chen, you co-founded Doctors for Fertility. So can you talk to us about why that was important to you? Well, I feel that everybody needs to know that this is about all of healthcare, not just pregnancy care, not just abortion care, not just women's rights. And as fertility doctors, because we make babies, we feel that we can have a calm and safe conversation, reach across the aisle, reach across boundaries to tell people this impacts everyone. People who maybe want to electively terminate an unwanted pregnancy, but also people who want to have a family. It's not enough for me to make the embryo in the dish. I have to get to the actual baby. And this idea of making abortion illegal is similar to saying to a surgeon, if someone has appendicitis and you take out the appendix before the patient gets really sick, you will be thrown in jail for life. That's the Texas law, lifetime in jail, plus $100,000 of a fine. I don't know why life in jail is not enough. So that's like telling somebody, don't treat appendicitis appropriately. So what these laws are doing are telling physicians all over the country, everything you learned in medical school is wrong and you need to treat patients according to the law in order to stay out of jail. And we are going to end up with a lot less doctors in a place where we already have a physician shortage and we are literally mandating malpractice. So we're hoping all of you join Pregnantition, all the advocates in the room to say, we need our doctors to stay out of jail so they can take care of us. So I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you. Next up, I'm so excited to bring Davina Fankhauser from Fertility Within Reach. Davina, can you share a few words about Fertility Within Reach and why you're here today? Fertility Within Reach was founded by patients who became advocates. And we did so because we wanted to make sure everybody who needed this healthcare would be able to access it. And so we're here to empower everyone. And you do. I have so many questions for all of you. I would love to start with you, Davina, actually. With the overturn of Roe, the legality of abortion is handed down to the states. We know that. Can you give us a brief overview of the trends you're seeing across the nation? Where is advocacy needed most, in your opinion? I would say advocacy is most needed in the significantly conservative states. The states that have either they have the uh, the trigger bans where they already had a law passed waiting for the Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so their laws are currently going into effect that have a ban on abortion. The states that are doing abortion bans at very 
early gestation, barely when there's even a heartbeat. And the most concerning are the states that define an embryo as a person and trying to give rights to an embryo. Yes, and, and it's, it's a strange thing, isn't it, in the infertility community, because we talk about our MB babies, we work so hard to create our embryos, and so while I don't consider my frozen embryos people at all, they still hold a special place in my heart, and I think so often people don't understand that that doesn't mean that I think they're the same as babies. And that's true. What I try to do is I try to break it down for the legislators and I try to explain with the guidance of doctors because I am not a specialist. But now I understand at six days, an embryo hasn't even implanted necessarily. There's no pregnancy test that's positive. So without a pregnancy, it really doesn't make sense to necessarily call that a person at fertilization. And so just trying to like break it down scientifically for them, I think helps them better understand that there may be unintended consequences with their legislation. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Krishna, you're definitely such an important voice in this room. You're on the front lines and thank you for all your work here. We believe abortion and healthcare are inextricably intertwined. From your clinical perspective, from your perspective at Planned Parenthood, can you speak to the ways in which abortion is connected to other elements of family planning, reproductive, and sexual health? Absolutely. I think that, unfortunately, um, you know, abortion care, in this context we're talking about in the context of infertility, but I think in many aspects of life, people have thought of abortion care as a very separate thing. It's an easy thing for us to just cut off abortion care and that's not gonna affect anything else. And what we know is that there is no safe pregnancy care without safe abortion care, period. And so I think as now that bans are in effect, people are starting to realize that you can't have one without the other. And when you take, when you put in abortion bans, um, you really endanger the health of people who are pregnant. I can say, you know, from my clinical perspective as a physician, but also as someone who has experienced two pregnancies, as someone who has experienced a cancer diagnosis out of the blue, luckily not during a pregnancy, but, you know, health, a person's health, and especially a person's pregnancy, is a very dynamic process. We think of it, I think culturally, people think of it as a very happy thing, obviously in the context of infertility where people are working really hard to have a child that they want. It's obviously truly remarkable. And at the same time, we know that things change can change from minute to minute in a pregnancy. What, what puts us all at risk is when the people who are providing care for pregnant people cannot do what is necessary for that person. And that's really what is happening right now in terms of abortion bans. Absolutely. Well, speaking of that, we do have two fertility physicians um, beside me today. And Dr. Chen, um, we know we've spoken a little bit about medical conditions that may necessitate abortion like ectopic pregnancies. Can you break down some reasons in general a pregnancy may have to be terminated? So one in four of all pregnancies will be abnormal and end in the first trimester where the fetus doesn't develop or the heartbeat stops. In the fertility, infertility community, that number tends to be much, much higher than one in four. So 
a huge number of pregnancies are ending in the first trimester, and yet they don't necessarily take care of themselves. They don't necessarily pass on their own. Sometimes they pass partially. That's called an incomplete abortion and can cause severe bleeding and infection. There's a septic abortion where because you're passing these products but not well, you get infected. There are tubal pregnancies, which are the number one cause of maternal death in the first trimester in the United States today. 2% of all pregnancies, a much higher number in the infertility population where the pregnancy is outside the uterus in a place that will cause internal bleeding, eventually death if it is not taken care of. And then there are fetal anomalies abnormalities, which are found sometimes in the first trimester, but sometimes in the second trimester, say after that 15-week arbitrary line that Lindsey Graham proposed, because we're mostly finding those anomalies at the 18 to 20-week scan, many of those pregnancies are completely non-viable and need to be terminated for the health of the mother. Remember, the earlier a pregnancy ends, the lower the risk of death or other health complications for the mother. Pregnancy can be really a deadly condition, and full-term pregnancy is always more risky than something earlier. So we want to end these abnormal pregnancies before, as soon as we can, for the health of the mother. So ultimately, for our patients, so they can have a family. People don't realize that when we say abortion, we are talking about these medical conditions most of the time. I would say the vast majority of these procedures are not actually done for elective termination of an unwanted pregnancy. Most of them are done for medical indications. So, you know, somebody has appendicitis, they gotta get their appendix out. Somebody has a complicated pregnancy, it needs to be taken care of. Absolutely. Are you seeing that at Planned Parenthood, the overturning of Roe, how has it affected the way doctors are treating patients? What are you seeing? Are you, are you hearing fear and anxiety on that front? Yes, absolutely. So we know as of today, there are 17 states that have already, um, that have abortion bans in place. And literally the landscape of abortion access across the country is changing on a day-to-day basis. And so, yes, we know that there are people who have a need for an abortion who are not able to have that abortion right now. I can tell you I've spoken to physicians in Planned Parenthood health centers who have prescribed medication for patients, um, even medications that don't have anything to do with an abortion procedure and are literally getting a call from a pharmacy, double checking to see if that pregnancy was, you know, past a gestational ban limit. So, and I think the other thing to keep in mind just in general is that this has created just an enormous amount of fear and confusion across the country. So we know that there are physicians um, and other healthcare providers who are providing care for things that have nothing to do with pregnancy, except for they may have a medication that could potentially have an impact on a developing fetus. And those physicians may be afraid to prescribe those medications. We know there are doctors and healthcare providers who are wondering, is this patient sick enough to qualify for an exception to an abortion ban or do I need to wait longer? And so I think 
This has already had a devastating impact across the country, and we know that it's likely to get worse. That is just so scary, and we're going to revisit that. I do want to hear some hopefully actionable steps we can try to take, but before that, Dr. Lucky, I want to hear from you, from your vantage point, the overturn of Roe. What do you think it means for, the, for IVF and, and embryo freezing or egg freezing? What's your perspective on that? So I think there is a lot of misinformation and lack of understanding of what IVF is actually setting out to do. Human reproduction is extremely inefficient. And a lot of people aren't aware of those facts unless they themselves have run into problems with their fertility and needing to undergo treatment. And so the entire point of the fertility treatments we administer, whether you're talking inseminations or IVF, is to overcome that inefficiency. Right, And when you think about IVF, what we're doing is we're trying to get to as many eggs as we possibly can and starting out at a, at a point where you have more eggs is going to hopefully help you overcome all of the attrition and inefficiency that normally happens in our bodies at baseline. Even if you don't have fertility issues, there's about a 15% chance that that one egg you're ovulating in any given cycle will actually result in a pregnancy. A lot of people don't know that. And as Dr. Chen pointed out, a lot of pregnancies end in a spontaneous loss or miscarriage because so many eggs that we ovulate and the resulting embryos that are created might have chromosomal errors or other problems. So when we do IVF, the whole goal is to start out with as many eggs as possible and to turn as many of those eggs into embryos. And so when we talk to people that are concerned about you know, life starting at conception and wanting to regard embryos as people, then that may lead to a cascade of events where people are starting to put limits on IVF and say, well, you know, we don't want you to have all these excess embryos that are frozen because those are people and they have rights. And that could severely limit the efficacy and efficiency with which we treat our patients. So I think embryo freezing is one potential area that is vulnerable. Um, we do a lot of genetic testing of embryos because at baseline, any individual is at risk of having an embryo form from their egg and a partner or donor sperm that could be missing or have extra DNA. And there's actual technology now, which is very mainstream and, and used day in, day out by reproductive endocrinologists like ourselves to actually understand what the genetic makeup of that embryo is. And not only are we testing to count how many chromosomes, that's something that can affect anyone. We can also look for things like cancer predisposing mutations or other types of medical problems. And so there's a lot of fear and lack of understanding. People think, you know, when you're doing IVF and you're doing genetic testing of embryos, they're thinking designer babies, we're selecting for eye color, but those aren't things that are done. This is regarded as something that is an embryo selection tool to help people get pregnant faster, minimize the rates of miscarriage and other complications, and to maximize the chance of having a healthy child. And so not only do we think that embryo freezing could come into question, but also the genetic testing. And genetic testing oftentimes is facilitated by being able to freeze the embryos and wait for the report to come out to tell you which embryo is actually healthy. So, you know, we worry about not being able to practice in a way that makes sense. And you know, this could drive up the number of cycles that patients have to go through if there's limitations placed on how many eggs can be fertilized in a given cycle. Um, and this is definitely going to lower the chance of success. And it hasn't actually happened yet. Um, that's a question I get asked often. But in places where there is person, there are personhood bills and that type of language, 
there's a lot of ambiguity and I think people who are setting out to go through treatment now, they're like, well, what does that mean about my embryos that are frozen? Maybe I'll want to come back and use them to have more children, but maybe I will. Well, I'm sure, have you seen in your clinics, because I know, so people travel for IVF a lot, but now we have pregnant audience members shipping embryos across the country because they're in some of these states where embryos are considered people. Are you getting new calls about that? We are definitely seeing that. We are also seeing doctors, young doctors say, you know, I, I'm concerned about working in those states and we already don't have enough IVF doctors in uh, so, so many parts of the country. So we're seeing it uh, uh, really affecting a lot of actual decisions right now. It is, it is very scary. But back to you, Davina. We recently celebrated a win in Kansas where the proposal to remove the right to abortion was rejected. In your opinion, what led to this win and what does this potentially mean for other states? Okay, so it, it's a little bit of good fortune and a lot of hard work. And what I mean by that is the state, uh, the Supreme Court in Kansas had already ruled that abortion rights were protected according to the state constitution. So what the state did was they created a referendum that people would vote on that would say abortion would be against the constitution in Kansas. So what happened was when it went to the people for voting, people in the numbers that they showed up to vote for Mr. Trump, they did not show up in those same numbers to oppose abortion. And the numbers that showed up to vote for Mr. Biden during the election, even more showed up to vote to oppose this referendum. So it was really people going door to door, people activating other groups, people reaching out. It was people, people, people showing up, having those conversations, and that is what it's going to take. This oh, is what I want from all of you. I hope all of you will have these conversations. What One of the big things that won in Kansas was talking about government mandates restricting your health care decisions. So it does seem to help. Even if you care about abortion and support Planned Parenthood, it does seem to help to try to shift the conversation to health care decision making because we know that this can be a difficult conversation to have and we want you to have the conversation and feel comfortable and safe having that conversation. Well, we know that access to health care varies. They're vastly inequitable across the country, often segmented. Of course, we're at an event today called the Diversity of Infertility. And this is often segmented by race, class, gender, sexuality, ethnicity, citizenship, and more. So who and what communities would you, would you say are most impacted that you're seeing in your role with this decision? So the first thing I would say is I think I want to be clear that abortion bans affect everyone. Every, you know, I think there was a misconception, unfortunately, by a lot of folks before the Dobbs decision that maybe abortion bans wouldn't affect them. 
And I think what we know is that abortion bans are really going to affect everyone, so we should be clear about that. At the same time, we do know that if you look at any health outcome across the United States, people are not all affected differently, and we know that people, there are communities that face for poorer health outcomes across the board, and those are communities that are affected by things like racism, things like heteropatriarchy, things like immigration status. You know, those communities face greater barriers, and that is going to be the case with abortion bans. Again, you know, we do have a a 50-state country, so as we've been talking about here, you know, the Dobbs decision did return this to the states, and so someone might think, well, you know, I live in, you know, California, and I'm okay, or I live in Texas, but I could potentially travel to Arizona. But what we know is that um, not all people can travel. And so we should be really clear that abortion bans have existed long before uh, June 24th when the Supreme Court overturned Roe, but they are obviously getting worse. And, you know, people face barriers, including stigma. They may face barriers to travel because they have a job that they can't just leave. They may have other children at home. We know that most people that have abortions are already parents. Um, and so, you know, who's going to take care of your existing child if you have to travel across the state lines to get an abortion? So, um, you know, I guess the bottom line takeaway is that communities that already face the most barriers and have the worst health outcomes are likely and are going to experience the worst um, barriers to abortion in this new landscape that we live in. This is a very scary, vulnerable time for so many people. But I would like to empower our audience. We have a room full of incredible advocates. And to start to think about what we can do, you know, because we're feeling so devastated and overwhelmed, how can we put our best efforts to use? I'd love to hear from each one of you on that question. You know, we are fertility doctors. And something that we've been working on for the past year, even before Roe was overturned, we had started these conversations. We've organized and created a not-for-profit called Doctors for Fertility. And it's about access to care. It's about more than just patients with infertility and protecting IVF. It's about protecting the full spectrum of reproductive health care. But we wanted to really come together in our subspecialty and highlight the, the vulnerable place that we're in, that our patients are in, especially in states with abortion bans and some of these personhood bills. We wanted to create a vehicle for people to share their stories. So if you go to our website, there's actually a place where people can submit and talk about how going through fertility treatment, IVF has impacted their life. We want to reach out to legislatures and, and basically talk to them and educate them, educate the general public, because a lot of people don't know some of the facts that I was referring to earlier about reproductive medicine and the treatments that we provide. There's a lot of misconceptions. So our goal is advocacy, education, and trying to affect change. And it's actually a hybrid organization. There are you know certain regulatory limits that um, are placed upon organizations and it dictates how you can use your money. And so we're called a C3 and a C4 organization, which means, yes, a lot of our efforts and the donations that people will provide to support what we're doing will go towards education and advocacy, but we can also, as a C4, put money behind candidates who understand our message. 
and who are willing to advocate and protect access to contraception, access to IVF, and access to abortion. So, you know, we're first and foremost OBGYNs, but we are focused on fertility and our population of patients, which at baseline are vulnerable. And I think on the heels of COVID, which was its own major source of stress and instability for our patients, I mean, I think this is now a very scary place to be in where you just aren't sure what the downstream effects are going to be of all of these abortion bans and what it's going to mean for the future because family building isn't something that just happens you know at one static time point it's an overall family building plan and fertility preservation and all of these things you know it's it's very hard to be in this space and to have that lack of predictability and because it's left up to the level of the states there is no clear delineation of what's going to be okay in the future um, and so I think we just need to provide support for our patients and provide a vehicle to advocate, educate, and push these initiatives forward. Absolutely. You're also truly on the front lines of this. What do you think we can do at, at the community level, the infertility community level, pregnantish community? What can we do? I think there's absolutely things people can do. And for, for the folks in the audience who are you know, using your platform to let people know that this is not a drill. You know, abortion access is being dismantled across the country. And I would say three things that you could do. Um, the first is, you know, really do support local abortion uh, health centers, reproductive justice organizations, Planned Parenthood health centers, and um, abortion funds. Um, those are those are all ways that you can help people who need abortion care get it. The second thing I would say is if you know someone who is seeking care, please send them to abortionfinder.org, which is a place um, where folks can go to find um, a location for abortion care. And then the third thing I would say is, you know, visit um, the website bansoff.org to really learn about all the different ways that you can use your voice um, to let people know that um, you know we don't need any bans um, on any of our, our bodies. Absolutely. Any last words, Davina or Dr. Chen? I, I would like to say, I think this is our fight to lose. Meaning, if people show up, if people use their voice, we are going to win this. We are going to get the legislators to be more supportive. We are going, if we take this for granted, if we don't show up, if we don't use our voice, we will surely lose. So this is really something to keep your eye on and to take action and to get your neighbor to take action and your best friend and your mother and whoever else that you know, we have to do this together. I want everyone here to, yes, use your voice, donate to these amazing organizations, Planned Parenthood, Fertility Within Reach, Resolve, Doctors for Fertility. We, uh, we need your voice, your stories, we need your money, and we need you to vote. That's what we need because you can make a difference. It's a very positive story. You will make a difference. Thank you. You're so already much. making a difference. Do we have anyone in the room who wants to ask a question to our esteemed guests? Risa. Um, I'm glad you said vote, but in addition to all that pro choice candidates, supporting pro choice candidates, not just at the federal level, but at the state and local level, because cities can have particular. Um, 
laws that impact our yes without the federal protection right. now exactly we're going um, local but I also I'm so glad that you started with education because it is astounding to me how many women who claim to be pro-choice will use the caveat but not in the third trimester without really understanding that those are the women you're not going to a corner shop and getting an abortion if you're in your third trimester on a on a win and and the physicians it, it, you know like, like people go to school for 12 years and have no idea how babies are born and how risky pregnancy really is and my biggest concern is that the word is not getting out that the one percent of women who undergo abortions in the third trimester are at such extreme risk from that procedure and that people are not understanding that those are the ones who most need to be protected but that to, to be so dismissive, well, of course I'm against it in the third trimester, is something that women should never say about other women. Yeah, and politicians continually say late term when they're referring to pregnancies at 15 weeks. That's still very early. Um, like Dr. Chen was saying, you don't really get a good look at the anatomy and you don't, you don't have the ability to rule out birth defects and things like that that wouldn't be compatible with life after birth until 18 to 22 weeks. So there's a lot of terminology that's being thrown around without the education behind it, and that's extremely problematic. I think a lot of people aren't aware that 90% of abortions happen before 15 weeks, right? So, And if I could jump in on that, I think I really appreciate you bringing up that point because even if 90% occur before 15 weeks, um, we know that 15 week, you know, that's still not enough because there are people who are going to need abortions later in their pregnancy for a number of reasons. And so arbitrary bans that put lawmakers in the middle of healthcare decisions for people are wrong, full stop. Full stop. Well, I think that's the message of, of our community perspective, especially. Uh, we work so hard to become parents. We give everything, every last dollar, every last effort to become parents. So to terminate is our worst nightmare, oftentimes. So to share those stories, even if we don't say the word abortion, I think is important for people to start to hear. Thank you so much to my wonderful guests. And thank you for listening to another episode of the Pregnantish Podcast. Please continue to subscribe, tune in. Until next time.